showtime. Welcome to the show. I'm Brent Holland, and welcome, one and all, to Night Fright. Tonight on the show, two very special guests. One you're familiar with already, Rick Nelson, and the other one, Robert Groden. Now, you're probably going to recognize that name right off, especially if you are... I was going to say a fan of the JFK assassination, but if you're into the JFK assassination, you're going to recognize that name for many reasons. He was in The Men Who Killed Kennedy, and he was also a consultant to Oliver Stone's JFK movie. We're going to talk about that soon. The whole night, folks, JFK, right now on Night Fright. Strap in and hang on. Here we go. There is a time to question. There is a time for answers. There is a time to challenge. There is a time to speculate. There is a time for change. There is a time for truth. The time is now. Welcome. Night Fright, your voice in the dark for Paranormal and Conspiracy Radio. And now your host, Brent Holland. Welcome, welcome, one and all. Welcome to the show. I'm Brent Holland, your host. Welcome to Night Fright. Two guests tonight, Rick Nelson. We're doing this via Skype, folks. We're cutting the... We're on the edge of the envelope here for technology tonight. And Robert Groden is joining us as well. We're talking about the JFK assassination. Many of you remember Rick Nelson was here. We talked... Um, about the Daniel Dodge mystery. All that stuff is in the archives, by the way, folks. www.nightfrightshow.com And also, Rick talked about, the week after, Rick talked about um, Oswald. Um, a different perspective of Oswald than we've gotten before in the past. And of course, as I said at the outset of the show, Robert Groden's with us, and his credentials are impeccable, of course. He's written many books on the assassination. He was in a very incredible documentary at the late 80s, early 90s, called The Men Who Killed Kennedy. You've probably all seen it by now on the Discovery Channel, History Channel. And also, he was one of the main consultants for Oliver Stone's JFK. I want to welcome the two of you to the show, guys. Welcome. Hello. Very kind of you to join us tonight. Let's start off with Robert, because he's the new guy on the block, shall we? Tell us about the road trip, Robert. <laughs> you see, folks, let me explain. Just prior to us coming on here, Rick said, you see, Rick and Robert are good buddies. Uh, Robert's on the line, of course, from Dallas, where it all took place. And Rick is just uh, here in, in Sudbury, not too far from where the studio is, actually. Just prior to coming on the air, he said, make sure you ask Robert about the road trip. So there you go, Robert. Right away, we're going to head right into it with the road trip. What was that about? You know, they have an expression that if you remember the 1960s, you weren't there. (laughs) (laughs) Maybe I better jump in here and help Uh, him out. (laughs) Rick and I I years ago uh, made a a road trip starting in Dallas and 
ending up in uh, in Pennsylvania. But uh, why, why don't you tell what you remember, Rick? You're younger than I am. Uh, yeah, yeah, well, not by much, though. I mean, we're I'm closing in on you, big guy. But uh, it was a 36 hour, as I recall, road trip. Um, um and uh, non-stop oh no we did make a pit stop in memphis but we started uh we, it began in philadelphia i flew in from toronto to philadelphia and then uh, robert and i and uh, a couple of other lads uh, drove straight that we did go straight 36 hours to dallas and we were pretty bagged by the time we uh, we got down there and uh, uh alternating uh, driving and it was a horrible horrible um um, uh, midsummer because it was like a. By the time we got to Dallas, it was about 106 uh, degrees Fahrenheit. It was uh, thank God, Robert, you had air conditioning in that car because I would have died. But then on the way back, so we were there. I was in Dallas uh, uh, with Robert, um, doing a number of things and visiting with a number of uh, different people connected to the to the story, the JFK case. And then about uh, a week later, we went back and uh, we started. When we left Dallas, the, the, the last stop in Dallas was at the grave of Lee Harvey Oswald. Oh. And we went out there, and uh, that's very hard to find because when you get to the cemetery, they don't tell you where it is. So fortunately, Robert knew he'd been there before, and uh, we uh, we jumped out, took a bunch of pictures of the grave, and then we got back into the car and started making our way back to uh, uh, Philadelphia. Along the way, we stopped in Memphis and uh, visited the uh, the shrine where Martin Luther King had uh, been assassinated, uh, stayed the night in Memphis, and then uh, kept going, and then stopped into Washington and uh, ended up at the grave of uh, JFK. So I just thought it was uh, an interesting trip where we started with the grave of Lee Harvey Oswald and ended with the uh, uh, last or the, the last resting place for uh, John F. Kennedy. Yes, this has become known as the Cemetery Road Trip. Cemetery Road Trip. <laughs> I never thought of it that way, but that's what it was. <laughs> you know, we're making light, but uh, as we speak just a few days prior, folks, Another JFK legend has passed on to the other side, and I'm speaking, of course, of Ted Sorensen. Ted Sorensen, for the folks that are listening that aren't sure who he was, he was the speechwriter for JFK, but he was so much more, folks. He was like a brother in many, many respects to John Kennedy, and he was also his top advisor. 1962, October, the Cuban Missile Crisis, folks, he was the, the one that John F. Kennedy assigned to write the letter to get Khrushchev to back down, and thank God he did, and Khrushchev ended up pulling the missiles out of Cuba. Our guests tonight, Rick Nelson, Robert Roden, we're talking about the JFK assassination, of course, November 22, 1963. Robert, let's go back to you again. What have we learned since let's say the JFK movie came out, which was what ninety one. I'm not if I'm not mistaken. It's two thousand and ten right now. Let's say twenty years. What has what has emerged in the last twenty years? Well, the the irony is that a great deal of the stuff which has been learned isn't released yet. Um, I have a new book coming out with a lot of brand new stuff in it that uh, I've been sitting on for the last couple of years, waiting to be able to get it published. But the economy here is so terrible that uh, I haven't been able to raise the money to do it. There is a lot of new information, a lot of new evidence. uh, And uh, Rick knows about quite a few of those things. Uh, He and I have discussed it for quite a while. But um, with all the good stuff that we've been able to come out with, there's been a lot of false stuff released, too, which is very, very sad. Um, 
the other side in this case, the great nameless other side in this case, has come out with a lot of false stories, a lot of deception, and a lot of uh, a lot of so-called evidence going in the other direction. We have a, uh, a cable TV station here. Uh, I guess you probably have it there too. It's called Discovery. Sure. Well, Discovery has done a series of about five different shows. Uh, I believe it's five. It may be maybe six now. I'm not sure. Uh, but they have come up with more dishonesty and more deception than e- anyone on either side of this case has ever done in all of these years. And they did, they've done all this in the last three or four years. And the reason why they're doing it uh, relates to a uh, CIA document. And the CIA document is called 1035-960. Uh, in 1976, it was uh, declassified by mistake. And what it says is uh, it tells how um, how uh, members of the of the CIA should uh, utilize the uh, news media and uh, and and television and uh, uh, different different areas of of, uh, of that kind of, of information uh, dissemination to uh, attack people like myself and Ray, people who are are, are dealing with the uh, assassination uh, evidence. And they, I could I could uh, try to find a copy of this and read it to you directly. I, I'm sure I have a copy pretty close by. Yeah, I do. Um, I tell you what. Uh, essentially, what it says is uh, that they should use feature articles against people like me, uh, and that um, the the uh, the CIA should put out information stating that uh, we're communists and we're we're in it for the money. And uh, and we're wedded to individual theories. Uh, I, I think, as Rick could probably tell you, and, and anyone who knows my work could tell you, I have never dealt with theories in my life. What I've dealt You're listening to Night Fright, your voice in the dark for paranormal and conspiracy radio. The time is now. And now your host, Brent Holland. Keep going to what they believe. And, uh, no, we have to counter this kind of garbage because the, uh, uh, the last thing that the Discovery Channel did was called um, uh, Inside the Target Car. That's right. Gary Mack's hack. Yeah, Gary Mack. Exactly. I'm glad you mentioned him because exactly what happened was this. We were watching them film this, this monstrosity in Dealey Plaza. They, they hired a couple of policemen to uh, close off Elm Street uh, so there wouldn't be any traffic. And they uh, rented a, a duplicate of the president's limousine. And uh, they were photographing the occupants of the car. And if you are familiar with the Zapruder film, you know that a frame 313 the frame where the president is struck in the head, Mrs. Kennedy is sitting slightly forward of the president and looking at his face. Well, what they did is they put her behind him. Yeah. So that if a bullet from the null had gone through the head, it would have hit her. And I was watching what they were doing, and I, I went around to behind the stockade fence, and I showed the, the cameramen and the, and the producers and directors and everybody, including Gary Mack, uh, that they had it all wrong, and they told me to mind my own business. And I said, well, this is my business. And what they did on TV, and it was Gary Mack who said it, too, saying that if the shot had come from the null, we would have had, and I quote, a dead Mrs. Kennedy, end quote. 
uh, it's absolutely horrible. You know, we have a hard enough job trying to find the truth when people really believe this garbage. But when when they the knowingly lying like Gary Mack and and the uh, and the Discovery Channel, it's very very difficult to uh, to have to waste the time to put up with it because people can see the truth for themselves if they're allowed to see all this stuff. However, if you go up to the um, uh, to the sixth floor museum in Dealey Plaza and want to see the way Mrs. Kennedy was sitting, you can't because they cut the Zabruder film before the headshot. Is that right? Now, folks, I just want to orientate you too. Elm Street, folks, is the street that President Kennedy was shot on. The Sapruder film, of course, is that very famous film of the assassination that I'm sure you've seen. If you've seen the movie JFK, Bob Gordon, our guest today, was a consultant for that movie. When Oliver Stone goes back and to the left, back and to the left, that's the Sapruder film. That's the one we're talking about. A frame... Z313, folks, just to let you know, every frame of the Zapruder film was given a number. And the number that represented that actual frame that shows the headshot to President Kennedy was Z313. Our other guest tonight is Rick Nelson, and I would say Rick's probably the closest expert on Lee Harvey Oswald next to his wife, Marina. Uh, that we have right now. And I'm going to turn it over to Rick now. Rick, what kind of experiences have you found uh, in your dealings with research and what kind of obstacles have you come across? Oh, boy, you want it in chronological order? No. <laughs> <laughs> uh, sure. <laughs> uh, uh, for, well, first uh, first of all, I, I just want to uh, thank you for calling me an expert on Lee Harvey Oswald, but I wouldn't call myself that. I mean, uh, Robert certainly knows um, a, a lot more about Oswald than I do. Uh, what I know of him is from uh, you know personal conversations I had with, uh, with Marina when I uh, stayed down there in Dallas and spent a great deal of time with her. And so I... Uh, I learned a lot about Oswald um, in a sort of a three-dimensional way, uh, learning about him as a, as a person. Uh, we all seem to have a two-dimensional picture of Lee Harvey Oswald, what we read about him in the history books and uh, the, uh, uh, the archival uh, uh, footage of him uh, when he was arrested. But uh, to learn about Lee Harvey Oswald as, a, as, as the person, um, I, I, got a, I thought was a three-dimensional picture of the man. And he certainly was... Uh, complex and uh from what i uh learned about uh lee from from marina he to me wasn't a very uh likable a nice person and certainly wasn't very uh good to her um there was a lot of domestic violence in that marriage and uh so i came away from a picture with a picture of Lee Harvey, uh, just sub- separate that from, you know, his alleged involvement in the assassination. Just as a person, I, I just didn't come across liking him, is the best way to describe that uh, about him. Yeah, he's a bit of a violent fellow. How did you and Robert hook up? How did you guys meet? We, we've never hooked up. That's just a rumor. <laughs> listen, listen, Robert, it's Canada here, you know. Anything flies up here, baby. Oh. <laughs> No problems um, there. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I met I, I met Robert at the uh, the uh, 30th anniversary of the uh, oh, 
course. Uh, the assassination. I, I went down. I volunteered to work at the JFK Assassination Information Center. Uh, we had just come off of the uh, the JFK Symposium in Sudbury, Brent, uh, at Laurentian University, where you are. 97. And uh, that had happened in the summer of 93. Had met a lot of the people uh, who were involved in the story from uh, from Dallas Marina came up and um Larry Howard who was the the uh, curator of the JFK Assassination Information Center and a few other people witnesses the assassination I wish Robert had had an opportunity to come up and uh cuz that would have just been the icing on the cake for that symposium so I got to know all these players uh, up here in Sudbury and uh, volunteered to help them out because I knew that there was going to be an onslaught of uh, people coming to Dallas and attending his museum and did he need any help so I went down uh, as a volunteer for two weeks uh, for the uh, 30th anniversary of the JFK assassination and Robert was attending uh, that um, that event and that's where we met and the rest is history as they say now yeah. I want to, can I add something sure, please do, please do, jump in anytime uh, in 1995 I wrote my 12th book on the Kennedy assassination called uh, The Search for Lee Harvey Oswald and uh, essentially, it is his biography. And in that book, I was able to come up with uh, over 600 photographs relating to Lee's life. And um, I must tell you that the hardest part I had about writing that book was trying to deal with his military records. Because when you try to put them in shape, you find that there's always more than one situation, one location for him. Uh, which is extremely interesting because uh, other people, such as John Armstrong, other researchers, have come up with the hypothesis that there was actually more than one person using Lee's identity uh, while he was alive up to the time that he was killed. Uh, there's a great deal of evidence of that. But um, I, I think I got to know Lee pretty well uh, by, by researching his entire life for a period of several years. And um, first of all, I'm absolutely convinced he had nothing to do with the Kennedy assassination at all. He was the uh, the patsy, the uh, the designated patsy, if you will. And uh, uh, Marina, I, I think, sheds a very, very interesting picture of uh, of Lee. Uh, as uh, as she said to me several times, Lee was no angel, but he didn't kill the president. Good point. Okay. Um- we're going to get into that in a second because Rick has a bit of a different opinion than you do on this one, and there's where I want to go. I want to give the folks that are listening there all the information I can so they can make up their own mind. Folks, you're listening to Night Fright. I'm your host, Brent Holland, com. There you're going to find a wealth of information. Tonight, of course, we're discussing the assassination of John F. Kennedy. Um, I have interviewed uh, first-person witnesses. Uh, Dr. Robert McClellan, for example, was one of the doctors who worked on John Kennedy three minutes, four minutes after he was shot in Daly Plaza that day. Uh, Beverly Oliver, who you can actually see in the Sapruder film that we mentioned before, um, she saw the headshot. And uh, James Tagg, who was actually the third person wounded in Daly Plaza that day. And, and in my opinion, that's the wound that proves that the single bullet theory couldn't have happened and we're going to get to that in a second our guest tonight rick nelson of course he's jfk aficionado how's that rick does that sound good student of the assassination uh, whatever the assassination okay uh, i call and, robert the robert is the expert like he is a wealth 
He's an encyclopedia of knowledge when it comes to the assassination, and I could not ever hold a candle to the knowledge that, that he has developed over. Uh, I mean, he's one of the godfathers. Uh, and is a, and oh, one other story. When we were on this road trip, and we stopped into Nashville, into a bookstore, and people started coming up to him. Uh, he was like a rock star. So, I mean, I have the greatest respect to uh, of, of Robert, and there's no way I could hold, uh, um, you know, I'm nowhere close to where he's at as far as uh, his knowledge of the assassination, but I do have opinions. There you go. Folks, we're also speaking with Robert Groden, and Robert Groden, of course, uh, was in The Men Who Killed Kennedy, and uh, just a few years after that, he was a consultant for Oliver Stone's JFK, and you can't see this on Radio Land, but I am holding up the book of the movie JFK, Robert Groden. Robert and Rick are, are my guests tonight. We're talking about the JFK assassination, of course. Now, we mentioned Lee Harvey Oswald. Lee Harvey Oswald, folks, for those of the folks that are listening right now that aren't sure how Lee Harvey Oswald works into all of this, he was the purported assassin. Now, the key word there is purported. Many people feel that he had nothing to do with it whatsoever, as Robert just said. But Rick has a bit of a different opinion, and that's where we're going to go right now. Rick, would you like to tell us what you think? Well, I, I, you know, I, I haven't got there yet as far as whether he did it or he didn't do it. I'm just a little... Um, I'm hearing a little bit of uh, ringing in my ear. Is somebody trying to call somebody? Yeah, it's just a cell phone. Don't worry about it. It uh, unfortunately it was got left in the studio there. It just got turfed outside. Oh, okay. <laughs> I, I thought it. I thought something uh, was going on with me. I was starting to lose it. <laughs> Sorry, buddy. <laughs> you hearing voices too? No, I'm kidding. Yeah. 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 Harvey Oswald telling you he didn't do it. Oh. <laughs> um, well, yeah. I you know one of the last conversations I had with. Larry Howard, who was the the curator, the founder of the JFK Assassination Information Center, regrettably he passed away only, I think Robert about three months after the the uh, the thirtieth anniversary. Um, um, yeah. But uh, uh, we were talking one night in a restaurant, and he said that uh, one of the first things uh, when he when he went up to the pearly gates and he got through, uh, uh, he uh, one of the first conversations he had wanted to have with somebody was with lee harvey oswald because he said i have a lot of questions for that guy and so um thankfully he's got his answers and certainly i'd like to get uh, get mine because uh, for me i just um i i just don't know i just uh i haven't got there yet that uh, that he did or, or he didn't do it but he did have to me as far as what i understand through conversations i had with uh, marina that he had a history of uh, violent behavior uh, that doesn't mean he you know that leads to becoming a presidential assassin but uh, he certainly uh, in his in his life the uh, time times he spent in russia uh where uh, he wanted to um they they wanted him to return home and he uh from what i understand tried to try to commit suicide there to stay or to get attention uh, so that he could stay in russia that uh he was mean to marina during their marriage that uh he uh according to marina tried to uh to uh, um shoot somebody uh general walker 
that she had to, uh, when Richard Nixon was in town, wanted to uh, go out and, and do something to him. That's when he, uh, he was uh, former Vice President Nixon visiting Dallas, and she had to lock him into the bathroom. So um, uh, there, there was a history of uh, violence in his life. And I'm not saying that, that, again, that that makes you become a presidential assassin, but he, he was capable of violence. And so uh, I've always been troubled uh, with that, and probably one of the reasons why I, I never found him to be a very likable person. I don't blame you there, and he used to tag off on his wife too, folks. Uh, he had- You're listening to Night Fright, your voice in the dark for paranormal and conspiracy radio. The time is now and now your host brent holland but i you know it's funny i tend to fall in with robert on this one i think he was just a patsy i don't think he was a great guy that's for sure as heck i think a lot of problems with that um let's continue on with that line of talking now the sixth floor museum we had uh mentioned this before and the sixth floor museum folks Lee Harvey Oswald was supposed to have taken the shot from the sixth floor in a building called the Texas School Book Depository. This building was behind President Kennedy's motorcade, behind his car. And we're going to talk about the magic bullet in just a second because apparently he only got off three shots from a bolt-action rifle in less than seven seconds, 6.3 or 4 seconds, I believe it was. Now, anybody who's a hunter know that's virtually impossible. There's no way in hell you can make a shot like that, especially from a bolt-action rifle. Plus, there was a lot of anomalies with this darn rifle. The uh, scope was hanging off of it, etc. Can we go there right now, Robert? Can we talk about that magic bullet? Sure. Because a lot of people that are listening now, primarily university students, as you know, may be new to this magic bullet. I, I call it the bullet that should be oh. in Cirque du Soleil. <laughs> very, very, very simply. Um, from the time the president's car was visible to somebody in the so-called Oswald window, the sniper's nest, until the fatal headshot, you have a total of 5.6 seconds. That's it. That's the maximum. The FBI and the Warren Commission and other groups through the years have test-fired that particular rifle and found that to get off two shots, that is, to pull the trigger, work the bolt, and get off a second shot without even taking time to aim, without trying to hit anything, is an absolute minimum of 2.3 seconds. 2.3 seconds. Well, the Zapruder film and the sound recording of the shots show two shots in 1.6 seconds, which is way too soon to have come from that same weapon. It's physically impossible. Uh, If you've got a fourth shot anywhere uh, within that time frame, it had to come from somewhere else. Now, the real issue of the case is, can you get off two shots in 1.6 seconds? And the answer is quite actually, you cannot. But the way it's misrepresented by defenders of the Warren Commission and the Sixth Floor Museum is, can you get off three shots in 5.6 seconds? Yeah, you can. If you don't hit anything, if you don't try to hit anything. But that's never been the issue. The Zapruder film and the uh, audio recording done by, uh, by accident by a Dallas police officer named H.B. Uh, McLean 
both show exactly 1.6 seconds. It is too soon to get off a second shot. Therefore, a fellow by the name of Arlen Specter, who uh, is now no longer a uh, a, uh, a senator from Philadelphia here in the uh, in the lower 48, as it were, uh, <laughs> we uh, uh, he came up with an idea called the single bullet theory. We have another name for it, but I'm afraid the censors would get you in trouble if I said that word. It's a nice little eight-letter word. begins with a B, ends with a T. Yeah, you can figure it out. In any case, that's exactly what it is. It's an absolute lie. Uh, I have two photographs of Arlen Specter when he was trying to sell his idea of the single bullet theory. And uh, it shows him in the FBI garage, and he is uh, showing the, uh, uh, his theory and in order to make the uh, the bullet come out of the president's throat and to stand in for the pro, or should I say sit in for the president uh, to go on to hit Governor Connolly, he's got to raise the uh, entry wound in the back of the president to the back of his neck by nearly seven inches. And this photograph was taken by the FBI. I've published it a couple of times now. It's a fabulous picture because it, it proves it couldn't have happened. Uh, and the sit-in for the president actually has a chalk mark on the back showing where it would have to go in, seven inches below where Spectre is showing the bullet going in. Well, how did they deal with that? They got that idiot, Gerald Ford, uh, who was one of the seven Warren Commission members, to arbitrarily move the location verbally from the president's back to the back of his neck. Now, Ford admitted that he did it, but he said it was for clarification. How does moving it to a place where there was no bullet hole and calling it an entrance wound, how is that clarification? Well, that's the single bullet theory, folks. It didn't happen. It never could happen. If you take the entry point in the president's back and the entry point in Governor Connolly's back and draw a line between the two of them, you'll find that the hole in the president's throat was actually one of the entrance is seven inches too high to have come from, from that particular bullet. And Dr. Uh, Dr. Uh, Malcolm Perry, who is the man who performed the tracheotomy on the president, said on the day of the assassination that it was a wound of entry, not a wound of exit. Therefore, it did, in fact, come from the front. Absolutely. Uh, Go ahead. I think that's, uh, uh, well, uh, I was just going to echo what Robert was saying, but that the Dallas doctors, many of them saw that as an entrance wound, that neck wound, not an exit wound. And the other thing that I, uh, that is, uh, that is uh, always been interesting as far as uh, locking up the evidence that there, there was uh, two gunmen, maybe more, uh, was the acoustical evidence, uh, which over the years has, they've, they've managed to enhance. And uh, I think Robert, you were were you the first to um, match the uh, the acoustical evidence with the Zapruder film? Yes, I was. Uh, what had happened was it was discovered by a researcher named Mary Farrell uh, that the audio recording in Dealey might have been the, the, of the actual time of the assassination on the Dallas police tapes may have in fact been recorded in Dealey Plaza, and if in fact it had been that that uh, that reality then the sounds of the shots might have been buried somewhere within the, uh, the audio tape. Well, it was tested by the House Assassinations Committee and found that, yes, in fact, the, the audio recording does, in fact, uh, contain the sounds of the shots um, on the, uh, on the uh, tape itself. Now, it's not complete. The work on it is not yet complete. 
because the House committee ran out of time and money. And once they found a fourth shot and traced that the echo patterns back to show that that shot was fired from the front, not the rear, uh, from the grassy knoll, they had a conspiracy and they didn't have any more money to go any further. So they stopped with that. And it was enough. But the problem is that when the uh, peer review was finally done on the acoustics tape, it was found there was potentially 15 shots on the tape. Now, 15 does seem like quite a lot compared to the official three. uh, But in fact, there is evidence of at least 10 in the plaza. Governor Connolly was hit three times. President Kennedy was hit four times and at least six shots missed completely. So there is evidence of a great deal more. Um, A lot of this is covered by three separate chapters in my new book, if it ever comes out. Uh, And the book will be called JFK Absolute Proof. Um, Rick is familiar with this. He's one of the very few that is. But um, in any case, uh, the acoustics tape really needed further work done. Uh, what they were able to do is to confirm through the echo patterns that, in fact, at least one of the shots that was confirmed on the uh, on the tape did come from the grassy knoll eight feet to the west of the corner of the uh, stockade fence. So uh, there is evidence there of that, and exactly where the uh, scientists found the shot fired from using the acoustics evidence I found in a photograph a man standing there at exactly the same spot to the inch as to where they said somebody would be. And they had never seen the photograph. Really? But what, what, what photograph I did, was that? Uh, that was the, uh, the Mary Mormon photograph. Of course, of course. okay. Yeah. Now, uh, while we were doing this work, I was called in to work with the acoustic scientists on this. And I'm not actually a scientist, but... The work we did was a scientific uh, experiment and investigation. So in this particular case, I was a scientist for a day. Uh, We took the uh, original uh, first-generation copy of the Zapruder film, which was made before the film was cut. So it has the most accurate um, uh, uh, representation of time. And we took the actual sound recording. We uh, we, uh, time-corrected it for an error in the... uh, running speed of the tape and we what we did is we actually uh took the two and we we uh we put them together we actually created an, a sound copy of the zapruder film which shows that in fact the shot from the right front from the behind the corner of the stockade fence did not miss it struck the president in the head and uh and it killed him threw him to the rear and to the left uh, exactly as we showed in the movie jfk but yes, I was I was fortunate to be the one to have synchronized the two together, and um, that's a piece of history that a lot of people are not aware of. So uh, thanks for bringing it up. I, I do appreciate that. You're listening to Night Fright, your voice in the dark for paranormal and conspiracy radio. The time is now, and now your host, Brent Holland. More proof, more proof, folks. We're speaking with two experts, I would say, uh, in my own opinion, certainly very, very well-versed in the assassination. Rick Nelson, of course, uh, who's been on the show before, www.nightfrightshow.com. 
you can go to the archives there. You're going to find Rick's shows. Uh, just scroll down, actually, on the front page, and they're right there. Readily be available for you to download. All free, by the way, folks. Always, everything's free at the Night Fright website, nightfrightshow.com. Our other guest tonight, of course, is Robert Groden. Robert Groden was a consultant for the film JFK. And I'm going to ask Robert in a second how he came to be the consultant for that and uh, if he worked in tandem. Actually, let's go there right now, can we, Robert? Sure. Um, Did you work in tandem with Jim Mars? Jim Mars, folks, let me just grab his book here wrote a book called Crossfire that was given to Oliver Stone that sparked Oliver Stone's interest in the assassination and uh, Oliver Stone ended up uh, making a movie from it and Robert Rode of course was one of the consultants on that movie. Did you work in tandem with Jim, um, Robert, once you uh, got going on the movie? Yes, as a matter of fact we did. Actually, JFK, the movie, is actually based on on four bits of subject matter. Uh, It's based on Jim's book, uh, Crossfire. Uh, It's based on Jim Garrison's book, On the Trail of the Assassins. It's based on my book, High Treason. And it's based on uh, a script done by Oliver Stone and um, Zachary Sklar. So those those four bits of, of writing are what represent the final result of the movie JFK. Uh, I was hired on to do a lot of things. One of the things was basically uh, to make sure that the script was accurate. And um, I had a great deal more input than I ever got credit for as far as the movie goes. And I did get to play four parts in the movie as well. I got to play Dr. Perry, Dr. McClelland, uh, the projectionist in the courtroom, and the photo technician who creates the phony backyard pictures of Lee Harvey Oswald holding the, uh, sure. the rifle in the backyard at uh, uh, 214 Neely Street, which is one of the most damning bits of evidence against Lee Oswald, and it was a total fraud. Anyway. Uh, uh, let's stop right there, and I, let's come back to JFK in a second, because I know our other guest, Rick Nelson, <laughs> has a different opinion, because he was told something different by Marina. Well, just other than... Uh, is the mic on? Can just yes. Yeah. Okay. Sorry. That's sorry right. about that. Uh, about it's been a while, and it was so long there. I've, I apologize. <laughs> sure my mic for that. Um, again, I'm only I'm only repeating what uh, what uh, you know conversations that I had, and she just recalls the uh, the uh, the that day, November twenty second, nineteen sixty three, when she was um, at uh, the home of Ruth Payne. She was boarding there. Uh, she'd been separated from. Um, from Oswald, so she was living uh, living with um, Ruth Payne out in Irving, which is just outside. It's more or less a suburb of uh, Dallas, and uh, like everybody else, heard the news that uh, Kennedy had been uh, had been killed. And uh, the next thing you know, there's people, uh, people, uh, police knocking on Payne, Ruth Payne's door and um, looking for. Um, um, uh, evidence uh, that would link Oswald to the crime, and they were asking uh, whether or not he owned a gun. And uh, she, uh, Marina, knew there was a a rifle 
that belonged to uh, to Lee in the basement, uh, although Ruth Payne didn't know that. And uh, so she, uh, in fact, she apparently had uh, gone into the garage when she heard that Oswald had been shot because she was wondering um, whether or not her husband was involved in the uh, in the murder and went and looked into the garage and thought she saw the gun under the blanket. And and it was a, to a great sigh of relief. And then when the police came, she uh, again was asked about the rifle and uh, directed them to the garage. And this time when they went to. Uh, retrieve the rifle uh, in the blanket the blanket went limp because there wasn't something inside so that's um again it doesn't link him to the actual murder but um certainly uh wasn't a very good uh, day for marina no absolutely um and did she not also mention that she did take those pictures didn't you mention that to you as well that she did take those pictures in the backyard uh yes she did okay uh, uh, let, let me let me interject. go ahead. Here we go, <laughs> Robert Groden, folks. <laughs> I uh, I had breakfast with Marina at the house of Abby Rockefeller in Connecticut uh, many years ago, uh, before people really got to know Marina from the few uh, times she appeared on TV. And I sat there having breakfast, and over frost a bowl of frosted flakes, I asked her uh, specifically if she took those pictures, and she said no. She did not. She said she did take some pictures of them, but these were not the ones she took. She said the pictures that she took, she was standing at the base of the stairs on the side of the building that go from the from the uh, backyard up to the second floor. But that she said when the pictures that she took, she was uh, aiming the camera toward the alley uh, where the pictures that we're familiar with, the three pictures that exist now were taken from the alley uh, toward the stairs. And she said she did not take the pictures that were in evidence now. Uh, yeah, I didn't. I didn't get that specific with her. I'll, I'll concede that. So you may be be right there. Uh, she uh, there was another picture I think that she had uh, uh, taken that she mentioned she was she put in her shoe. Uh, so because she didn't want that uh, that particular picture to be found. So what those what those pictures are whether they're. Uh, there are uh, uh, different types of pictures. I, I can't say. I didn't get that specific uh, uh, in in the manner that Robert did with her. Fair enough. Okay. Because I just thought, you know, when you're referring to, you're talking about pictures, I, I'm assuming, you know, when I'm asking her about uh, the pictures, I'm, I'm assuming she's replying, discussing the pictures. So, you know, Robert may very well be right. Okay, fair enough. Nope, that's good. You know, we're getting all sides to this and and you know it's all just pieces to the puzzle right um folks we're speaking with rick nelson of course and robert groden we're discussing the jfk assassination tonight and as always you can go to the triple w dot brent hall sorry triple w dot night dot com website once there you can click on the archives and download all those shows for free um lots of stuff on the jfk assassination uh, we've got shows there with abraham bolden who was the first african-american secret service agent handpicked by john kennedy was not on service that day was subsequently framed actually for being a whistleblower against the secret service claiming that they were all drunk that day and indeed they were and racist slurs that they would never protect kennedy uh that he was a nigger lover etc etc horrible horrible stuff this man went through and he's still trying to search for vindication today i had mentioned ted Sorensen at the outset of the show 
his interview is there, uh, a full hour, a full an hour and a half, I should say, worth of Ted Sorensen, uh, JFK speechwriter, top aide. We discussed the assassination. He hinted, I guess is the best way to say, that he had no proof that it was a conspiracy. Actually, I shouldn't say it that way. He basically stated he thinks now it was probably a conspiracy, but he didn't know who did it. However, he did name every single agency (laughs) that could have been involved when he talked about it with me. So that's there as well. Well, I hate to interrupt you. It's it's terribly rude of me, but you're bringing up a very interesting point. And, you know, uh, Ted Sorensen was the keeper of the flame, as it were. Absolutely. Uh, uh, I believe, if I remember correctly, uh, you wrote about him uh, saying that he had stated that President Kennedy was the man who saved the world. And I absolutely agree. You know, I, I think I thought the world of President Kennedy. But uh, you mentioned him and his belief that it was a conspiracy. Dave Powers um, and uh, Kenny, uh, Kenny McDonald, thank you, yeah, uh, were, yeah. were both in the car right behind President Kennedy. Right. And they were both aware that the shot that killed the president came from the grassy knoll. They said so. They testified about this. Uh, if you want to see where their statements are, there's a book called Man of the House by Tip O'Neill, who had been the Speaker of the House of Representatives. And in this book, Man of the House, uh, Tip O'Neill talks about speaking with both uh, Kenny O'Donnell and uh, Dave Powers, and they both admitted that the shots came from the front. But that the Kennedy family wanted it just put aside. They wanted it put behind them. And uh, as a favorite of the Kennedy family, they both lied under oath about where the shots came from. You're listening to Night Fright. Your voice in the dark for paranormal and conspiracy radio. The time is now. And now your host, Brent Holland. Rick, we all know that there's a cover-up going on, and it is being sustained to this day. Why do you feel this is continuing, even though most of the players have died off by now? Why do you think they're still covering this thing up? Everybody knows it was a conspiracy at this point. Yeah, um, you know, I wish I had a, I wish I had an answer for you, other than the fact that, uh, you know, uh, I, I don't know. You, that's a question for, uh, I think, Robert has a better answer than I do. I can't figure out why 50, it's almost 50 years, and still, I mean, is it going to take a deathbed confession from somebody? Is there, is there another Sapruder film that's out there that's in somebody's crate in, a, in an attic uh, that's, uh, that will someday become available? Um, are there, is there information uh, in the files that have yet to be released that, uh, that will provide the, the smoking gun? Uh, I, I just don't understand it. Uh, the, the television's complicity is something that maybe Robert might want to talk about because you've had some interesting um, dealings with the media. I do like to, t- I would like to talk about it, but I'd like to get Robert's take on televisions uh, or the media's, the press, the networks, Dan Rather's complicity. Thank you, Rick. That's you bring up an interesting point. Uh, what I mentioned before about CIA document ten thirty five nine sixty explains in the CIA's own words what they're going to do about this and how they're going to deal with people like us. Uh, that speaks for itself, and anybody who's interested, you can find that document online. Uh, it's extremely important. But here. Um, 
there, there, we had three or four different things to deal with here, and I don't want to forget any of them. Number one was why the cover-up goes on. Is that a fair way of representing that? Absolutely. That's perfect. Okay. The answer I see is essentially this. The watchword of the FBI is never embarrass the Bureau. The people involved in this that work for the FBI, as far as screwing up the investigation goes, even if it wasn't actually part of the actual conspiracy to kill the president itself, those people are gone now, most of them, if not all of them. But the Bureau goes on. And if the truth be known in this case, both the FBI and the CIA would have a tremendous amount of embarrassment. They blew it. There is a great deal of evidence that the CIA was actually involved in the conspiracy to kill the president himself. This is, in fact, uh, within the documentation that exists now. Uh, If you go back to the Senate Intelligence Committee in the 1970s, uh, Senator Frank Church and uh, Richard Schweiker, uh, other people at the top of the investigation were implying very strongly that the CIA was at least involved in the conspiracy, if not the, the source behind it all. There's no, no mystery about the fact that President Kennedy and the CIA were at war with each other from the time of the Bay of Pigs. That's, in fact, the, the case. Additionally, beyond that, the CIA was insubordinate to the president. He ordered them to stop their assassination attempts against Fidel Castro up to the very last minute of his life. And they uh, absolutely were not listening to him. They refused to listen. They were insubordinate. And, um, and the president felt that they were out of control. And he told uh, members of his inner circle, and I'll bet that Ted Sorensen was one of them, uh, uh, that the president was, in fact, going to tear the CIA into 10,000 pieces and scatter their ashes to the wind. Absolutely. Again, this is embarrassing to the agency and the agency's um, mystique by itself, even if the people involved at the time were gone. Now, um, let, let's go back very quickly uh, to the... Um, the Clay Shaw trial, since we were talking about JFK before, the movie JFK, which is about the uh, arrest, prosecution, and eventual release of, of, of Clay Shaw. Clay Shaw was, I'm convinced, part of the conspiracy. He did lie under oath uh, at his trial about work, having worked for the CIA. Uh, Richard Helms, the director of the CIA, admitted under oath before Congress that, in fact, uh, Shaw had been a CIA agent and had, in fact, lied about it under oath to protect his own rear end. If, in fact, Shaw was working for the CIA, there's no, no shame in that. Why would he take the chance of committing perjury in front of Congress uh, and, and, and risk going to jail for 20 years? Uh, it, it makes no sense. So that the reason why I'm convinced is that, that these people are afraid to tell the truth because when the few people have come forward and told the truth, they've ended up ex- extremely dead. And, and for the individuals involved, they're, they're uh, afraid of what might happen to them. The military people involved, such as the autopsy doctors, are afraid of losing their pensions. They were ready for tar- retirement at the time. They were told to lie. They did lie, and they got away with it. So uh, that that's how I see it. Rick, how do you feel? 
Well, I'm, I think about the media's uh, coverage of the JFK assassination um, and uh, how things changed over the course of a day. Um, you take a look at that footage of the, uh, the assassination that ran almost uh, within the first hour of the assassination. So you have film crews out there in Daly Plaza filming you know, the events just seconds after the assassination, and you see everybody running towards the uh, the grassy knoll. In some cases, uh, they grabbed witnesses. Um, uh, Bill Newman is one that uh, comes to mind with his, and, and his wife, Gail, who were hauled into WFAA uh, TV in Dallas and put on the air within 10 minutes. Uh, of the uh, of the assassination taking place, and they're all talking about um, about um, shots coming from from behind. Again, the footage showing everybody racing towards the grassy knoll. Uh, you don't see anybody, um, you know, discussing the Texas School Book Depository. Uh, that emerges maybe about uh, an hour or so later about having um, a suspect uh, who was seen up there. And then all these other witnesses, uh, Gene Hill being another one who was a witness to the, uh, the assassination and seeing something coming from the hill. All those, um, all those witnesses are um, forgotten about almost within the first 90 seconds of, or 90 minutes of uh, the assassination taking place. And then you see the story developing that uh, the shots are coming from behind. I, I'm not saying that the, uh, the media was complicit in um in uh, in the uh, conspiracies for to in the assassination of president kennedy but i i just think that they spent too much time relying on their on their government sources uh, as far as being gospel and um i think robert will agree with me on that so then what uh, why then later on you know as the years went on um the, the, the days, months, years, uh, why didn't the media eventually uh, correct itself and say, hey, look, you know, maybe there's something more to this. Um, and my theory on that is the, is the media relies heavily on government sources to get their stories. Um, so if you attack uh, or question these same government agencies about their complicity in keeping information from the public about the assassination, um, there's a good probability that your sources uh, are going to start drying up for future you know, for future stories. Rick, you're absolutely right. During the uh, last Bush administration, if you'll excuse the expression, um, that's exactly what the Bush White House was doing. If uh, if reporters were not friendly in saying what they were told to say or what the administration wanted them to say, they wouldn't get their questions answered. They wouldn't get their questions even asked at press conferences. They wouldn't even be invited. They totally rely on that, and they were being controlled by the White House. Uh, and this is exactly, I think, what you, the statement that you just made was exactly what was going on there, that the, uh, that the Johnson White House was using control over the press to get said what they wanted to have said. And, and that's, that's exactly what had happened. Uh, we had the Vietnam War going on at the time. As a matter of fact, when President Kennedy was killed, the Vietnam War hadn't even existed yet. We had advisors there. We didn't have a single combat soldier there. It was, wasn't until four days later when Lyndon Johnson reversed the president's withdrawal order uh, that we got the Vietnam War that we got to know and hate. And that, that uh, war led to 58,000 American deaths and uh and uh, I believe over a million uh, more uh, total. 
and and in fact uh nobody dared question the white house because they would be iced out and uh, as you pointed out so correctly rick that uh uh news agencies rely on on their source materials and if they're iced out from their sources they won't exist anymore they'll lose ratings and then they'll fall to the bottom of the charts that's exactly right you're listening to night fright your voice in the dark for paranormal and conspiracy radio the time is now and now your host brent holland and folks just to let you know, we're going to start to wrap up part one. This is going to be a two-part show. You're going to love it, the second part, because, Robert, you must be clairvoyant, because one of the questions that I have for you guys was President Johnson complicit in the assassination. Did he know about it, and was he involved in the planning? But hang on to that answer, because we're going to get to that in the next show. Folks, we've been speaking with Rick Nelson, and Robert Grode, and of course Rick Nelson, you'll remember he was on the show previously. Two of his shows are there in the archives, www.brent, I did it again, www.nightfrightshow.com, www.nightfrightshow.com. And if you're interested, check out the brenthollandshow.com website as well. You'll find a wealth of information there as well. Nobel Peace Laureates, and I just did an interview this morning with Prime Minister Paul Martin from Canada. So that'll be there as well. When we come back in the second part of the show, we're going to go and talk about Mr. Johnson, President Johnson. In the meantime, folks, we're going to take a short little break. And if for any reason the station that you're listening to can't air part two of this show, very easy way to hear it www.nightfrightshow.com. Just download it directly from there, put it on your iPod, or something new. I want to mention too is something called Night Fright Television, Night Fright TV. Daily Motion, folks, is the same type of thing as YouTube. YouTube has a restriction on the duration of a video you can put up. It can't be any ten. It can't be over ten minutes in duration. Does us no good, right? The show is an hour long. Daily Motion is the same thing, except it allows you to put up as long. Uh, a duration as you want so that fits this show much better it's much better just do a google search night fright show daily motion it's going to you're going to come up with a whole bunch of videos as well as two videos featuring rick nelson i'm brent holland from night fright see you later Listening to Night Fright and your host, Brent Holland. The time is now. Your voice in the dark for paranormal and conspiracy radio. (laughs) 